0: the Sermon on the Mount. Over these many months, we have listened to Jesus Christ who has spoken to us on a wide range of subjects. He began by painting a profound portrait of the flourishing human being. And then he followed that portrait by exhorting us on all sorts of subjects from being salt and light to recognizing our anger, to lust and divorce and oaths and turning our cheek, love for enemies, giving, prayer, and then finally last week he spoke to us concerning fasting. This morning we come to Matthew 6.19 where Jesus turns his attention and he turns our attention to a further topic, that can be a rather touchy and taboo topic for many of us, and that is the topic of money. Have you thought much about your relationship to money? What does that relationship really look like if you are as honest with yourself as you can be? I think it's good for us as Christians Whether we are on the wealthy side or the poor side or somewhere in between, it's good for us to reflect often as Christians on our relationship to money. And Jesus here will direct us in this passage toward adopting God's perspective on money and on wealth. Now, we should begin here, I think, by making a couple of basic statements About the Bible's attitude toward money and wealth. Basic statements. We need to point out as we begin that the Bible teaches us that it is not sinful in and of itself to gain wealth or to be wealthy by honest means. Again, it is not sinful in and of itself. To gain wealth or be wealthy by honest means. In fact, God himself is said to be involved or complicit in a person's wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18 says that it's God who gives people power to get wealth. And Psalm 112 describes a man who fears the the Lord as having riches and wealth in his house. And we also know that a great many of the saints of the Bible, the great saints of the Bible, were wealthy in a material sense, people like Abraham and David and Job. So again, it is not sinful in and of itself, and I'm stressing that, To be wealthy by honest means or to have an abundance of financial resources through above board hard work. As Dan Doriani has put it, it is no sin to produce or gain wealth by honest means for God created the world with the capacity for wealth creation. The issue, friends, is what we do with the material resources that we are given. The danger that the Bible announces to us in many places is that wealth and possessions can indeed become a snare to us, a trap. Money, wealth, and possessions can so easily be things that lure us. That steer us so that we come to trust in them and find our security in them and yearn for them and love them instead of trusting in God and in finding our security in him and yearning for him and loving him. Our relationship to money and possessions can get so skewed, the Lord warns us, that now money and possessions become an idol, a God that we serve, and a God that enslaves us in darkness. Our soul can be panting after material things instead of panting For God, as the psalmist says. So this is the danger. And Jesus will now sit us down and he will talk to us about this issue in the next part of his sermon. Let's go to the text. He begins in 619 by saying to you and saying to me, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, The way the Greek is constructed in this phrase, the idea here seems to be stop this action that's already ongoing in your life. Stop this process already underway of laying up for yourselves treasures on earth. It's almost as if Jesus here is interrupting us as the Son of God, interrupting us in an action that he knows is already in progress with us. It's like Jesus is simply assuming that laying up treasures for ourselves on earth is endemic or is altogether regular amongst fallen human beings at any given time. We're already doing it. We like to do it. Jesus says, stop it. Stop treasuring up, which is one way we could translate the verb here. Stop treasuring up for yourselves treasures on earth. Stop this accumulation of wealth and possessions for yourselves. Stop this hoarding. Of material stuff for yourselves. Now the question may arise here. As we look at this text. Is it okay for us as Christians. To save money for a rainy day as we say. Can we plan financially for the future? And the answer is. Of course we can. In fact in Proverbs 6. The ant is praised for storing up food in the summer for the leaner winter time, right? So we can put money to work. The issue that Jesus is addressing here is a selfish collecting or a greedy accumulation, a heaping up of material stuff so that we have an unused surplus. And we are not generous with what we have. We keep and we hoard. That's what he's getting at here. And in the next part of verse 19, notice, Jesus gives us the reason why it's unwise for us to engage in such earthbound material accumulation. He points out here a fact. And the basic fact he points out is that wealth and possessions kept on this earth are, listen, corruptible and they are insecure. I'll say that again. Jesus points out now that it's unwise of us To hoard material stuff on this earth, whether wealth or possessions, because that stuff is corruptible and it is insecure. It is all susceptible to decay and to disappearance. In the words of Jesus here, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Here's the reason where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. All right, let's talk moths for a minute. You never know what you're going to get on a Sunday morning, right? In the ancient world, exotic and expensive garments were prized by many people. Some of us may remember the tragic story of Achan, In Joshua chapter 7, one of the items that Achan coveted was a particularly gorgeous cloak from Babylon, uh, the Gucci of the ancient world. Exotic garments were prized and they were coveted in the ancient world. And then over in 2 Kings 7 verse 8, we see there that garments were among the spoils of war. That could be taken after a battle. Some garments in the ancient world. That were dyed a deep purple color. Were especially valued. Remember Lydia. Who was a seller of purple. This is what she was involved in. These were especially valued garments. And they were often priced accordingly. Priced very exorbitantly. And along with prized garments. Parchment books. And scrolls were also highly valued in Jesus' day because there weren't many of them around. But here's the thing, friends, about these expensive garments and these precious books and scrolls. They could all be eaten away and ruined and made of no monetary value by what? By the tiny... Larvae of moths and bookworms. The basic point that Jesus is driving home here is that the material stuff on this earth that we tend to drool over is very susceptible to decay and destruction. Charles Quarles talks about the moth here in verse 19. He says... Jesus emphasized the transience of earthly riches by naming as the first threat to earthly treasures a tiny creature that any little child could crush even with her smallest finger. And then Charles Quarles hits the nail on the head when he says, If treasures are vulnerable to such small and weak creatures, surely one is unwise to depend on treasures or to spend one's life accumulating them. Jesus also talks here in verse 19 about rust, where moth and rust destroy. Actually, the Greek word behind that translation, rust, means more literally, Eating, consuming. Now, granted, rust does eat through metal, but the Greek word probably shouldn't be translated as rust. The word is about eating. And it could refer to vermin or to mice that eat through stores of grain. Or locusts that eat through entire fields full of wheat. So we have this imagery in verse 19 then of moths and vermin. Or moths and insects. Little creatures that nibble and peck and eat and consume and ruin things. Jesus is saying here that treasures on earth are susceptible to being eaten through. They are vulnerable to developing holes and wearing out and deteriorating. Now, every day on my way to the church building, when I get on the 40 from the West Island, I pass by a Lamborghini dealership. And two thoughts usually run across my mind as I pass by in my Toyota. The first thought is, Who in their right mind would buy a performance car like that and drive it on Montreal potholes? (laughs) It's mind-boggling. The second thought is, as wonderful as those Lamborghinis may be, and I don't know because I've never driven one, but as wonderful as they may be, give them 20, 30, 40 years And each and every one of them will end up rusted through and on the crush pile. Just like my Toyota will. Material stuff decays on this planet. Stuff wears out. Whether an expensive status symbol car or a pair of jeans or a computer, or a couch, or a boat. Wealth and possessions and material status symbols are prone to wear and to decay and to loss. Jesus also talks in this verse, notice, about treasures on earth being vulnerable to thieves, breaking in and stealing. Well, yeah, if the little creatures don't finish off your stuff... If biology and chemistry don't do it, then unpredictable fevery will. Your stuff may simply disappear one day. You come home and everything's cleaned out of your house. What's his basic point here? His basic point is that no earthly treasure is totally secure. No material wealth or possession is fail-safe and immune from danger. And friend, even if your hoard of wealth and your accumulated possessions, your material treasure, even if it does manage somehow to escape moths and mice and insects and thieves and unpredictable stock markets and rust and general entropy, even if it escapes all of that, you will one day die. And to quote Ecclesiastes 5.15 here, As you came from your mother's womb, you shall go again, naked as you came, and shall take nothing of your toil that you may carry away in your hand. Or First Timothy 6.7, We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. What's his basic point in verse 19? I appreciate Jonathan Pennington's summary here. He says, Jesus is saying that only a fool would choose to store treasures in a place that offers no security and promises destruction and loss. The truly wise and righteous person will not store up treasures in an unsafe place. Which brings us to verse 20. Is there an alternative to the earthbound accumulation of wealth and possessions? Yes, there is. Jesus says, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? Say it out loud. In heaven, heaven, where neither moth nor eating, consuming, rust, destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Friends, listen very carefully. There is only one place that offers total security, stability, and enduring permanence for treasures, and that's heaven. Decay and entropy, and chance, and instability are not found in heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, says Jesus. First Peter 1.4 says that it's in heaven where an inheritance is being kept for the believer, and it's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, totally secure, and totally lasting. Now, two questions surface at Matthew 6.20. First, what are the treasures in heaven that disciples of Jesus lay up? And second, how do disciples lay up these treasures in heaven? To answer the first question, so the question again is, what are the treasures in heaven that disciples lay up? To answer that question, we are probably wise, I think, to go to a verse like Matthew 19, 29. Where Jesus promises his obedient disciples that they will receive a hundredfold of the things that they've sacrificed for him in this life. Family, houses, Plots of land. Or we can go to Matthew 25 verses 14 through 30 where Jesus promises his faithful disciples that in the age to come they will be set over much. That is, disciples will have an increased authority. I think passages like that Wet our appetites as we think about the nature of the treasure that we lay up in heaven as faithful disciples. Our second question was, how? How do disciples of Jesus lay up these magnificent treasures in heaven? And the answer that Dan Doriani gives in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is excellent. He says this, and I want you to listen carefully. He says, we lay up treasures in heaven by investing in God's causes and God's people. The effects of such investments last forever. We store treasures in heaven by worshiping God, growing in knowledge and grace, and growing in love for God and neighbor. Financially, we store treasures in heaven by using money for kingdom causes, by giving money to the church, to missions, to Christian schools, to the poor. When we store treasures in heaven by investing our money in God's people, our investment will bear dividends for eternity. Close quote. Yes. When you invest yourself, And when you invest your financial resources and your talents and your gifts and your energy into the kingdom, you are building for yourself the only kind of capital that ultimately matters. Treasure in heaven. Let's go to verse 21. Jesus says, famous verse, For where your treasure is, There your heart will be also where your treasure is. Now, the two options for the location of your treasure in this passage are what? Earth and heaven, earth or heaven. So the question for you, friend, and for me is, where is your treasure? Where is it? Where is the thing that you value above all else? Your treasure. Where is the thing that you deeply cherish? Where's the thing that you are pouring your whole self into? Is it on earth? Or is it in heaven? The location of your treasure, says Jesus, automatically and simultaneously shows the location of your heart. And again, heart in the Jewish mind of Jesus meant the very essence of a person. The very center of a person's existence. One's emotional, moral and spiritual life. Your thoughts, your desires, and your actions. Your very self. That's what heart means. Wherever it is that your treasure is, wherever it is that the thing you most value resides, whether it's earth or heaven, that is also where your whole essence, your whole energy, and your whole self is. So the question again is, does your self belong To the pursuit and the allure of earthly treasures. Or does it belong to the far surpassing treasure of God in heaven? That's really the either or question. And it is an either or question in this passage that Jesus is posing to each of us here. There seems to be no middle ground in the mind of Jesus Let's go forward to verses 22 and 23. I want to read these verses aloud and then we'll talk through them slowly. They're a little more difficult. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, at first glance here, it seems like an abrupt shift, doesn't it, in the passage that has now taken place. After all, Jesus has just been talking about treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven, and now suddenly we have this bit about eyes and light and darkness. So the question is, what's going on? Let's take these verses chunk by chunk, and then after uh, we'll do some assessment as to their meaning in the context. It's very important here that we understand this. So first of all, Jesus says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. What does he mean? The eye is the lamp of the body. Well, in essence, he's saying... The eye acts like a window between the outside and the inside of the body. It acts like a window. The eye functions something like a lamp for the body because the eye is where light is received into the body. We don't receive light through our noses, do we? We receive light through our eyes. The eye is the lamp of the body. But now the question we need to ask as we read these verses is this. Is Jesus talking strictly here about the physical, biological eye? Probably not. Listen. I think what Jesus is doing here in verses 22 and 23, is he's using that word I as a synonym, more or less, for the word heart that he just used in verse 21. So I, in verse 22 and in verse 23, is roughly the same as heart in verse 21. I and heart both refer here to the essence of Of a person. And as John Stott has pointed out. In Psalm 119. To set one's heart on something. And to fix one's eye on something. Mean the same thing. Eye and heart are synonyms in that psalm. Just as they appear to be synonyms here. In Matthew 6. They mean the same thing. So that. In verses 22 and 23, what Jesus seems to be talking about is listen, the gaze or the vision of our entire life. How do we see things? What is your perception of reality? What is your apprehension of the world and your purpose in the world and God and his place in the world what is your eye That's the issue here Jesus says follow along here if your eye So if your perception of reality and your life's focus is healthy your whole body will be full of light. Now focus on that word healthy. The plot thickens here. The Greek word behind the translation healthy is perhaps better translated as the English word single. If your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. Both William Tyndale... And the King James Version translated this word here as single in this verse. Now, to have a single eye is not to be a cyclops. Rather, to have a single eye is to have a focused, unclouded, loyal gaze or sight that is wholly fixated on God. This is about undivided loyalty in the gaze of one's life. Singleness. But now, are you ready for this? The plot thickens even more here. Listen, all we know about purple is that purple is purple, but purple also can can be in different shades, right? You can have lilac, and you can have magenta, And you can have probably other shades that I can't think of right now. Here, the word that we just have said should be translated single in verse 22. That's the basic purple version of the word that should be retained here. But there's also a further shade. The further shade to the word here is the idea of generous or generosity So that the word has to do with singleness, I hope you're following here, singleness or undivided loyalty to God, as we've said, but it further has to do with generosity. So that the idea in what Jesus says is, if your eye, listen, if your life sight or the fixation of your gaze is single, if it's focused exclusively and clearly on God and if your life is characterized by generosity and giving to others, what it will show is that your whole body, your whole self is full of light. Full of the light of God. However, verse 23, if your eye, your life's focus, your ambition is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. In the Greek here in verse 23, we literally have the words evil eye. Jesus says, if you have the evil eye, your whole body will be full of darkness. And in the ancient world, the evil eye was often a description of a person who was stingy, who was greedy, who was full of envy and miserly. In the Greek version of Deuteronomy 15.9, in the context there of God commanding generosity toward people in need, God commands that we must not have an evil eye. Literally what it says. We must not have an evil eye toward people. In other words, don't be stingy or greedy and miserly when it comes to your financial resources and giving away to the needy. Don't have an evil eye. Jesus says in verse 23, If you have the evil eye, if your life's orientation is toward keeping and being a miser and being stingy and being greedy, with your possessions and your financial resources, then it will show very clearly that your whole self is full of darkness. It will show that you are a person who is living in, and this is what darkness means, ignorance, blindness, and evil. Darkness. And then he wraps up verse 23 by saying, If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Charles Quarles summarizes this last sentence of verse 23. He says, when greed forces out any trace of inner good and only evil remains, the inner person is indescribably evil. The greedy person's corruption is complete. Now, having walked through these difficult verses, verses 22 and 23, having made an attempt to make some sense of them, can we start to see how they fit into the wider context, which includes verses 19 through 21? So again, in verses 19 through 21, Jesus talked to us about treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven and where our heart was at. And then in verses 22 and 23, he talked to us about where our eye was at, where our focus is, is our focus and our gaze on God and giving away generosity to our neighbor and thereby we are walking in light or is our life focused on greed, listen North Americans, greed, selfish keeping, so that we are walking in darkness? Do we have a clear vision about wealth and possessions, or do we have a clouded vision? This entire section so far, verse 19 down through verse 23, is about the place of treasure and our vision of treasure. The entire section is asking us what is our relationship to wealth and possessions? Doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. What is your relationship to wealth and possessions? What's the relationship of your heart to these things? And what's the relationship of your eye, your life's vision to these things? Let's go to our final verse, verse 24, where Jesus gives us now the climactic statement that caps off this whole section. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus has told us so far in our passage that your heart must be single. You can't have your heart with your treasure on earth and at the same time have your heart with your treasure in heaven. It's one or the other. And likewise, your eye has to be single. You have to look with undivided loyalty To God and be generous to your neighbor to be walking in the light. You can't have double vision. It's impossible, friend, to be greedy and selfish while simultaneously being God-centered and generous. It's one or the other. Single heart, single eye. And now he carries on this idea of singular focus. Notice. This idea of exclusive devotion. He says, no one, pause there for a minute, no one can serve two masters. Let me ask you a question. How many people in the history of this world can serve two masters? No one can, not one. There are no exceptions to this rule right now. There never has been an exception, and there never will be. This is an absolute rule that is voiced here by the Son of God. And again, we are listening to God. An absolute rule that is voiced by him. No one can serve two masters, period. Period. And the two masters in question here are named at the end of the verse, aren't they? It's either God as your master or mammon as your master. And the word mammon, it's in the text in the Greek, and it's retained by many English versions. They leave it in. It's actually a Greek transliteration of an Aramaic word that refers to property, possessions, and money. My friend, listen to me very carefully. In this life, you will either serve God or you will serve property, possessions, and money. But you cannot serve both because God says here, no one can serve both. Now, these words of Jesus here are very powerful. They are very colorful. Notice the verb he uses at the start of the verse, and he uses it again at the end of the verse, that verb, serve. Notice that. You will either serve one master or the other. You will either serve God, or you will serve property, possessions, and money. The word serve, what does it imply? It implies that you are a servant or a slave who serves an owner, and I am too. We can either take God as our owner and serve him, or we can be enslaved by another owner named Mammon and serve him or it. Now, we know that God is alive, right? God exists in three persons, but here Jesus also personifies mammon. Mammon can own people, amen? Mammon can own people, it can can make people serve him or it. Instead of money and possessions and property, serving God. As we give to God's kingdom and use those resources for God. The situation, friends, can flip Horribly, so that now we serve and are enslaved to money, possessions, and property. Mammon owns us in that scenario. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that both God and Mammon make what he called a totalitarian demand on us. Rival totalitarian demands. The totalitarian, totalitarian demand of God on our lives is found in the first commandment, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. So how much room is there in human life for any other god except the one true God? There's no room. No other gods in the first commandment, and no other gods would include mammon. There is no room for mammon to own us and be master over us and control us. The totalitarian demand of God over our lives is found also in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. With what measure of our heart, soul, and might are we to love the Lord our God? With all our heart and all our soul and all our might. That word all leaves nothing left over for mammon. God commands us, in fact, to give mammon away, to be generous, keep mammon at heel at our feet so that it serves the kingdom. But then, as we said, mammon wants us to serve it, doesn't it? It wants to own us. It also makes a totalitarian demand over our lives. It invites us, Mammon does, to concentrate solely on our own selfish interests in this life. To accumulate more and more and to come to trust in wealth. And to veer away from trusting in God. Mammon screams for our entire devotion. Mammon wants us to see it as our treasure, to see it as our help and our security and the place and locus of our dreams. My friend, what is your relationship to money and possessions? That's the question Jesus is asking us in this text. Be painfully honest with yourself, and I will too. Does a materialistic outlook control you? No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What a dividing line that the Lord Jesus puts in our faces here. If you have a genuine passion and love for God, your passion and love for property, money and possessions will surely decrease. And vice versa, If your love and passion are really centered on money and things and accumulation, your passion and love for God is going to bottom out. You may go to church, you may serve at church, but your passion and your love for God will bottom out. It's one or the other. You cannot serve God and man. We can never think and must never think, friends, that we can sort of dabble in church and God and religion like a part-time hobby. While we pursue with our lives what we really desire and treasure, which is the accumulation of material stuff. You and I cannot serve God and mammon. I like the summary of John Stott here. He says this, It is possible to devote oneself fully to the service of God, and it is possible to devote oneself fully to the service of money. But it is not possible to devote oneself fully to the service of both. The stark alternatives make it clear that the service of God is no part time affair, but something that calls for one's fullest devotion. Yes. Jesus forces us here to choose, doesn't he? Will we serve God or will we serve money? Right now you and I are doing one of the other one or the other. Which one will it be? The words of Jesus in this passage challenge me personally on many levels. The choices before me are just so stark. Will I store treasure on earth or in heaven? Will my eye be evil? Will I be stingy and greedy today? Or will my eye be single and generous, focused on God, giving my material resources away, Will I serve God or mammon? Again, as I've said, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor as you listen to Jesus here, because all of us, no matter what our financial bracket is, are susceptible to greed. And we are susceptible to trusting in money rather than God. As we close and prepare to move to the table of the Lord, I want to give you a brief warning and a remedy. A warning and a remedy. The warning to us is this. Listen carefully. As people born into a fallen world, we are capable of serving mammon for our entire lives only to find out at the end when we die that we hadn't been serving God At which point we will find that we are outside of God for eternity. That's the warning. You don't want to be in that situation. So what's the remedy? I can do no better here than to give you the remedy that was preached by Martin Lloyd-Jones many years ago. He encourages encourages us this way, and I'm going to end with this. He says that if you want to avoid that situation of being outside of God for eternity, then, he says, go to God this very day and confess to Him that you have been serving earthly things and laying up for yourselves treasures upon earth. Confess it to Him. Give yourself to Him. Place yourself unreservedly in His hands and above all, ask Him to fill you with His Holy Spirit who who alone can enlighten the mind, clear the understanding, make the eye single, and enable us to see the truth. The truth about sin and the only way of salvation by the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit who can show us how to be delivered from the perversion and the pollution of sin and to become new men and women created after the fashion and pattern of the Son of God Himself, loving the things of God and serving Him and Him alone. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, this is such a timely and difficult word for us to listen to this morning, but we thank you for it. You are never content to simply leave us to our own devices, but you come and ruffle our feathers and interrupt us as we go along our merry way and remind us that the way things look and are in this world are not necessarily the way that they will be for eternity. So, Father, I pray today for each and every one of us that we would take this word to heart that we've listened to and live it out and change the Holy Spirit being our transformer and helper, change for your glory and for our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite my brothers to come forward as we prepare our hearts for the communion table. In the record of the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus and his 12 disciples are busy eating when Jesus says in verse 21, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now I think that the response of the disciples to Jesus' statement is a very interesting response. Instead of each guy pointing at another guy and saying, is it him, Lord? Instead, what they do is they point the finger to themselves and they say, is it I, Lord? Is it I who will be betrayed? It seems there that the disciples had grown enough with Jesus uh, to come to the point where they were willing to do some good self-examination. That question that the disciples asked at the table with Jesus, is it I, Lord? That, that's a good question for each of us to ask as we prepare to take the elements here at the Lord's table. Is it I, Lord, who has betrayed you this past week at work or at school or in the home? Is it I who you were describing when you talked about the person who lays up treasures on earth? Is it I who somehow thinks that I can live divided in my loyalties? Is it I who has been coasting with you instead of being careful with you? Is it I, Lord, who has been walking in pride? And so on and so forth. The table calls us to look at ourselves and examine ourselves. But, friends, we must also see that the table of the Lord does not end with self-examination. The Lord does not leave us wallowing in our guilt if our answers to those is-it-I questions are affirmative answers. Here at the table, the Lord invites us to look away from ourselves, to look away from our sin and our guilt to the cross. Amen? To Jesus Christ. And at the cross of Jesus, we see that on our own, we will never... Be good enough for a holy God. What we've done, or sorry, when we've done, all we can do to correct ourselves of our shortcomings and our errors, we will still be what Jesus calls unworthy servants. And so we look to Jesus Christ, who alone can remove our guilt. Amen? We look to Jesus Christ, his body broken and his blood shed, who cancels our guilt and the stain of our sin. This morning, I sincerely encourage you to go to Jesus and to bring your failures, to bring your guilt and your sin to the foot of the cross and lay it down there. And rejoice greatly, won't you, in the pardon that he grants Heavenly Fathers in Heaven, may all glory praise and honor be
1: to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Thank you, Father
0: in Heaven, for the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for his body that was broken for us. Thank you that he was scourged for us, beaten and whitten for us. Father in Heaven, we don't deserve it, but because of your love, we have Jesus. We thank you and we praise you. Help us now, Father in Heaven, to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to bear fruits of the Holy Spirit, to walk in all holiness, Father, in heaven, and, of course, to pursue peace with all men, Father, in heaven. Mm. Help us to put away strive and dissensions, Father, in heaven, and just to have love in everything that we do. We thank you for all things. To you, through our Lord Jesus Christ, be the praises, the glory, forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen. Amen.
1: Is it I the question. Guilty as charge. Lord, we ask for the forgiveness of our failures in our hearts, in our mind, in our actions. Thank you, Lord, for without the remission because of the sacrifice of the blood, there will be no remission of sin. Thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice and I believe that's the only thing that we can say at this point in time. It has been accomplished through your blood. And again, we greatly thank you. Is it I? Yes. Lord, please forgive us for our divided hearts. In loving you, in caring for you. Again, we thank you in Jesus' name.